Good to be back here with you all. I want to, hopefully you've started to have your hearts filled this morning and you look forward to being able to study God's Word together. So I want to invite you, if you will, to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 4 through 7 this morning. And uh, to be quite honest with you, uh, we didn't, I didn't make it quite that far. And uh, we'll probably come back over this just a little bit next week. Um, but it's been a kind of a couple of weeks that we've been in Luke, and we have only just begun to look at this discourse of our Lord uh, that started in verse 1 of chapter 12, and it's going to run all the way to verse 9 of chapter 13. Now, we had just come off chapter 11, where Jesus had some very confrontational interactions with the Pharisees and the lawyers. And they were the dominant religious force in first century Israel. But if you recall, he pronounced woes of judgment upon them for their gross hypocrisy and their legalistic uh, traditions that they had been engrossed in. And as a result, Jesus uh, was relentless in unveiling them of their hypocrisy. And we ended that chapter, chapter 11, with Jesus trying to trap, or them trying to trap Jesus, rather, into something that he might say, and they weren't happy campers. It sounds awful loud up here. Is it the monitor? There we go. But anyway, great. Huh? Yeah. But we said a couple of weeks ago that this is a long discourse that has only a couple interruptions in it. One by a crowd goer that we'll see in verse 13, and one by Peter in verse 41. But as we start to examine this portion of Scripture, we're going to start to see some things that sort of boil to the surface for us. So as we dig deeper into this section, we're going to see some common themes start to take place and make themselves more apparent. And we said that one of those things we're going to start to see is Jesus providing words of comfort to the faithful, and the other is going to be words uh, of for the disobedience. And so as we go through this section of Scripture, those are the two lenses that we're going to be able to continually be able to see these things more clearly with as we work our way through this section. And today, we've got a portion that actually has both, but we probably won't be able to get through all of it. So just to remind you where we left off, there was a, a mob of people all around Jesus Christ. And this, wasn't been, this wouldn't have been like a scene that we typically see in a Jesus movie where there's maybe a, a couple hundred extras cast into the role, right? Uh, the word here in the language uh, used would have been upwards of 10,000 or more, or maybe even quite a bit more. Uh, it's, it says in verse 1 of chapter 12, it means tens of thousands. It's Plural. So there could have been 20 to even 30,000 people trying to get close enough to Jesus to hear what he had to say. So this was sort of a big deal in first century Israel. But close enough to him, within earshot, is his disciples. And so after he rebuked the Pharisees and the scribes, he begins to turn and teach his disciples. So in verses 1 through 3, he teaches them and us the futility of hypocrisy. And he warns us not to live like the Pharisees. Don't live a merely external life of propriety and turn, it on and turn off your religion whenever it suits you. Because ultimately, living a double life is a huge 
waste of time. And why is that? Because one day, full disclosure of your life and my life will come about on Judgment Day. Your true self is going to be completely revealed before an all-knowing and all-seeing God. God's limitless capacity and His divine omniscience are a 100% guarantee that all and any hypocrisy is going to be fully disclosed. In other words, one day, all of our secret sins will be revealed. All of our secret thoughts, all of our sins that we may have seemed to think that we have successfully covered over in this life are going to be laid open and bare before God. And so in verses 1 through 3, Jesus teaches His disciples about God's omniscience. His omniscience. He knows everything. He, he certainly knows our hearts. And so He warns the disciples to don't be like the Pharisees. But then this week, we're going to see the devastating results of living a life of hypocrisy. Not only is it foolish to live a life of hypocrisy because of God's omniscience, but it's foolish to live a life of hypocrisy because of God's omnipotence and His righteousness. So, let's read our text for this week, starting in verse 4. If you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, I want to invite you to do so. Starting in verse 4 of Luke chapter 12, God's holy inerrant word says this, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not Five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We just pray that it might encourage us, instruct us, exhort us, and help us to draw near to Christ. Father, we do thank you for this time. Just help our hearts and minds be singularly focused on hearing and receiving your word. And not only to do that, Lord, but to take it from these doors and to apply it. So, God, that's our prayer. That's our heart this morning. We just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I suppose one of the more popular things in evangelicalism than ever right now is that somehow, some way, that doing theology is a bad thing. Someone might say, you know what, don't get caught up in all of that theology stuff and just have a personal relationship with Jesus. Or they might say, you know, doing and learning theology is something to be avoided because all it seems to do is kind of create division. Doctrine is really unimportant for us as Christians because we don't really want to look bad and we don't really want to be divisive or be known as a disagreeable people. I actually had a guy come up to me at the Shepherds Conference this year and and tell me this very thing. He goes, I just don't like all this theology stuff, you know. And a typical California guy, you know, the long surfer hair and the tanned skin. That's all not like our California guys, but, you know, tanned surfer dudes, right? And 
it was like he was thinking that theology is something you do in the abstract, but it's not really going to do anything in your life. And that's certainly not true. What we believe about God, man, sin, salvation, and judgment are increasingly becoming secondary and sideline issues in our culture. And more than ever, that notion is finding its way into denomination after denomination. And as a result, we are rapidly seeing the decline of the church in the West. Now, a very, very recent example of this just happened a couple weeks ago with the United Methodist Church. And I'm not here to beat up on United Methodist Church. I love some people in the United Methodist Church, let me tell you. Um, But one of them is here today. But they had a general conference in Portland, Oregon here recently. Just a couple weeks ago, they ended. And one of the main discussion points that they had, as you can probably imagine, is on the subject of human sexuality. Should the denomination, which has had a ban on same-sex unions for 46 years or so, they asked the question, should the language be changed to allow some of the local and regional churches have the freedom to do as they please? Should the sin of homosexuality still be considered a sin was the fundamental question that they were asking. Now, currently, the denomination, like I said, they ban same-sex union, and that's been uh, the big question that's been kind of looming for years, and it looked like this year, this 2016 conference, they were going to finally overturn the denomination's view of this particular sin. Now, for seeing that they may not quite make the vote, some delegates in favor of same-sex unions came along and said, let's change the rules on how resolutions get passed. But that got shot down. They said, no way, we're not doing that. We're not changing the rules. But the the resolution, rather, that they did pass regarding homosexuality and same-sex unions was this. They said, let's form a committee and come back and talk about it in 2018. Let's kick the can down the road a little bit. Let's not make a decision right now, but let's talk about it later. Now, there were some 100 resolutions proposed in order to change the United Methodist Church's stance on same-sex marriage to allow it. And all of them, almost all of them, came from one country. You know what that country was? The United States. The United States was the one country that proposed more resolutions to overturn same-sex marriage as it has been understood within the United Methodist Church. And it's, it's really kind of a wonder. You think about the UMC, since 1964, they've lost 4.5 million members. And on an average, they lose about 50 to 70,000 people a year. And one year, they lost 112,000 people in the United States alone. But what the American United Methodist Churches are losing, the African Methodist Churches are gaining. In fact, they are gaining at a rate of 200,000 new members per year, annually. And it is expected that within five to seven years, they are going to have more United Methodists in Africa than they will in the United States. And why is that? Well, I want you to listen to this unprecedented statement by a group of African bishops from November of last year ahead of their general conference. And it was unprecedented because it was such a 
generated unity of all the bishops in Africa, and it was a public statement. But I want you to listen very clearly at what they said. The African bishop said this, quote, We are deeply saddened that the Holy Bible, our primary authority for faith and practice of Christian living, and our book of discipline, which is based off the Bible for them, are being grossly ignored by some members and leaders of our church in favor of a social and cultural practice which have no scriptural basis for acceptance in Christian worship and conduct. Wow. Then they went on. They said this. The Christian marriage is covenant is holy, it is sacred, it is consecrated by God, and it is expressed in the shared fidelity between one man and one woman for life. This was the Africans coming and saying this. So what, what they're saying, in other words, is that they are saying that their theology of sin, especially with this, the, this sin of homosexuality, and their theology of marriage shouldn't be dictated by the culture, but their theology should be driven by the Word of God. Their authority on what they can say what sin is and what sin isn't, and what marriage is and what marriage isn't, can only be found in Scripture. And so what the African Methodists are battling against with some of their U.S. brethren is the very same truths that the serpent tried to subvert Eve with in the garden when he asked her, has indeed God said in Genesis chapter 3? And to, so to have this extended debate on an issue that is so clear in the Bible, it's not really a mark of humility, but it's a mark of compromise, and it's a recipe for the shipwreck of the faith. And it might be the Africans who save it. But in order to make a determination as to what sin is, what constitutes a marriage, what the nature and character of God is, who Jesus is, how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to think, how the world began, what God requires of us, and how we are supposed to understand suffering and death, it all necessitates that we all do theology. J.I. Packer said, quote, If we are to love God, as we are commanded with all of our minds, then we need to be in the business of theology. Additionally, the scriptures go on and tell us that to grow in our knowledge of Christ, it requires us to do theology. 2 Peter 3, 6, 17 and 18 rather says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your steadfastness but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So to be able to determine and discern between truth and error, and to not fall away, as it were, it is absolutely necessary for you to grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, comes about by you doing theology through the Word of God. 1 Peter 2.2 says that we are to be like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Your spiritual growth, your spiritual maturity will only be proportional to the amount and the quality and the regularity by which you have an intake of the word of God. Sinclair Ferguson once said, he said, we are to work hard at Bible study, 
because the scriptures do not disclose their riches to lazy minds and hearts. So, to say that you want Jesus or that you just want to love God, apart from knowing Him as He has revealed Himself in His Word, it is absolutely nothing more than a grand illusion. Listen, most people, they don't just get married after one date, right? They, they spend time with one another. They talk with one another. They get to know one another more and more. And then after you do, in fact, get married, you keep learning about that person. You grow with one another. You start to learn more of that person's likes and dislikes, their taste, what makes them frustrated, what pleases them, and so on and so on and so on. But to think that you can know the truth about God, the truth about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, sin, salvation, judgment, and the eternal life, apart from the Scriptures, is really a delusion of the highest order. But when you actually do dig into the Scriptures and you get to know who God is and what He's done for you, you are then doing theology. So if you want to update your social media profile when you get uh, out of here today, you can add that I'm a theologian, right? You can add that to your title because that's who you are. The question then becomes whether or not, is, is not if you're a theologian, but are you a good theologian? Are you a sound theologian who develops your understanding under the authority of God's Word? And so as we get to our text this morning, we have something that is absolutely necessary for our Christian lives. And we need to have a right theology about it. But it is more often than not, it's really kind of overlooked and and sidelined. In fact, if I were to ask you, what motivates you in your interaction with God? What, what What dictates how you live your life before God? In your understanding of the Christian life, how should you go about living it before Almighty God? Now, many, if not most or all of us, would say love, right? Love is our motivating factor. The love of God is what motivates me, or loving God is what I attempt to do in my daily walk with Him. Or I try to order my interactions with my fellow man and when I come before Him in love. I do the things I do because God loves me, And I love God. But how many of us would answer that question that we live in the fear of God in our daily lives? How many of us would say that whatever the thing that we are getting involved in, we go about it in the fear of the Lord? But then you might say to me, well, hey, Matt, doesn't the Bible say in 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love? But perfect love cast out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. And I would say absolutely it does. It surely does. But it also says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, it says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Philippians 2.12 says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. 1 Peter 1.7 says that we are to conduct our time and conduct ourselves in fear during our time of stay on the earth. 1 Peter 2.17 says that we are to honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So what's going on? Well, I think it's helpful to that we get an understanding of what the fear of the Lord actually is. 
Because as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, when we think about the fear of the Lord, we typically think about it in a very narrow and a very negative light. The first thing that comes to our minds about living in the fear of the Lord is that it means that we live in such a way that God is just this angry tyrant sitting up there in heaven and he's waiting to pounce down on us and he just wants to beat us down. That's what we think of typically, right? Man, if I make one mistake in my Christian walk, whoo! I am done for, right? You might be thinking about living in dread and cowering in terror before God when you think about the fear of the Lord. It's kind of a suspicious resentment towards God. But that kind of fear is not a godly fear. Martin Luther, he made the distinction in this type of fear by calling it servile fear. Servile, it's S-E-R-V-I-L-E, servile fear. And that's just a Latin word that means slave, Servile fear is living under the hands of an angry tormentor or jailer. You've got this constant anxiety because you feel like you're just going to be beat down and whipped by God all the time, right? But is there a good fear? There surely is because Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, it says this of the Messiah. It says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Now listen to this, verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 11. It says, And he, meaning Jesus, will delight in the fear of the Lord. Wow. So surely, if Jesus delighted in the fear of the Lord, we should as well, right? I mean, that's something, if he's doing it, surely we should also fear the Lord with delight. And so Luther, Martin Luther, he made another distinction in the fear of the Lord and what he called filial fear. Filial, it's F-I-L-I-A-L, filial fear. And that Latin word there is where we get the concept of the idea of family. And so in this regard, the idea of the fear of the Lord is like a child who looks up to their mother or father in reverence and awe. It's a tremendous respect for them so that you're not motivated out of fear of punishment or to, or to be tortured, but you're motivated because you don't want to displease them. You find them your source of security. You find them a source of love and comfort and joy. And so you want to be with them and you want to please them. And so when it comes to fearing the Lord, you find pleasing Him and obeying Him to be a delight and not a burden. Psalm 112.1 says, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Ecclesiastes 12.13 says, The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this, Fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. You find your greatest happiness in and your greatest joy in Obeying God because you have the utmost respect and regard for Him. You you fear Him because you have the utmost adoration for Him because He's your Heavenly Father. You're, You're a person who takes God seriously because you know who He is and you know what He's done for you. Thomas Watson said that, well, I quoted this a couple weeks ago, he said that when you think of the fear of the Lord, you think that God is so great that you are afraid of displeasing Him but that also he is so good that you're afraid to lose him. Jerry Bridges, he gave a 
pretty good illustration of these two types of fear in his book that I just read last week. It's called The Joy of Fear in God. And he said, he goes, imagine yourself this guy who just entered the Marine Corps. And, and you go to boot camp, right? And this drill instructor comes up, and he is just hard-nosed. I mean, he's got the flat-top haircut, high and tight, right? He's in your face. He's chiseled, like he's got this wedge of a back because he's so strong from doing push-ups all the time. He is in your face and yelling at you all the time to drop and give me 20 just because you blinked the wrong way. You, you made your bed the wrong way one time, and he came in and he kicked it over and threw it apart, and he said, make it again. He went in and inspected your locker, and he says, aha, your hangers are not a half inch apart, evenly spaced, and he takes all your clothes out, and he throws them onto the floor, right? And you have to pick them up and clean them up. Every time this guy walks into the room, you are just trembling with what he's going to do to you next. You live in constant servile fear. But then this guy gets promoted. He's not around anymore. All right? Good news, right? And so that drill sergeant, guess what he became? He got promoted. He moved up the chain. Now he's a general. And so you make it through brute camp. You survive. And after a couple years in the service, you finally get promoted yourself. And now the Marine Corps calls you up and says, hey, man, I got a special project for you. I got a special detail for you. You're going to get promoted yourself, and now you're going to be the official driver of a general, and he used to be your drill sergeant, right? But instead of yelling at you in your face and then spitting on you when he talks, he's friendly, right? And you have conversations with him as you're, as you're driving him around and wherever he needs to go, but you still recognize that he's got a whole lot more rank than you ever will maybe ever will, right? He's got a whole lot more brass and decorations on his coat because he's the general. He's got the flags on the front of his car that say general, right? You recognize his authority and you are in awe of him and you respect him greatly. It's a, it's a mingling, it's a, a blending of respect and admiration and amazement and awe in who you are now serving. And this is filial fear. Right Now, the problem here is that with any earthly illustration that we try to use in regards to the Lord, it always, always becomes grossly inadequate. Because of God, who God is. Because of His character. At Exodus 25.11, it says, Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, Working wonders. In Isaiah's vision of the Lord in chapter 6, it says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Now, the train of a robe of a king would have been indicative of the amount of power and austere that he might have had. And here, as Isaiah looks up and he sees the Lord sitting up on his throne, and he sees that robe, the robe is filling the entire temple. It can't contain it because God is so powerful and majestic and mighty. And Isaiah looks up and he sees the king and it's filling the temple and he bows down in worship and says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. 
Again, Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, 26, he says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them by name because of the greatness and his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. God and God alone is infinitely worthy of our admiration, our amazement and our respect. Everything about God should just Fill our minds with complete veneration for who He is. He's the inexhaustible fountain of life. He's the source of all good. He is the true happiness is only going to be found in Him. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And He alone is excellent in all of His perfections and in all of His attributes. And so when you do an illustration about a general and a sergeant, it's grossly inadequate. Because of who God is. Because of His might and His power and His glory. And so when Jesus comes along and He addresses His disciples in verse 4, and He says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, and after that, there is nothing more they can do. He's helping them to gain a right perspective about who those who were in, at the time in Israel were the most revered and the most honored and the most lifted up and the most exalted in first century Israel. And that was the Pharisees and the scribes. And notice here that there's, there's an inference here that they will be the ones who kill the body. They're going to be the ones that start to persecute you. And so Jesus wants to give them an eternal perspective and not a temporal one. He wants to help his disciples to have this proper understanding about the object of their fear. And it does not lie with the Pharisees, but it lies in God alone. Now, this isn't an easy teaching because naturally and instinctively, what do we try to do? We try to preserve our own bodies, right? None of us like physical pain. And being the runt in my family where my brothers, they would wrestle on the floor at my grandparents' house at Christmas time. I quickly learned that you did not want to be on the bottom of a four-man pile. You just didn't want to do that because you were going to get beaten, right? (laughs) And so actually, I invented the cruise missile back in the 70s and the 80s because I would go away, let them wrestle. I'd swoop in silently, do my damage, and then I'd swoop right back on out, right? And so here, Jesus is drawing this line of distinction between the proper object of our fear. But he's also drawing a distinction between this life we live and the life that's going to come. Death is not the end for us as believers. Paul understood this very well. He wrote in Philippians 1, 22 through 24, But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. Amen? Yet to remain on in the flesh is necessary for your sake. And so he tells his disciples, don't be afraid of these guys. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Don't have this servile fear or even this filial fear, for that matter, to those who don't deserve your admiration or your awe or your respect or your reverence because ultimately those guys, they're hypocrites. And this world is not the end for you. Then in verse 5, he tells them who should be the object of their fear, and that is God. God alone should be the object 
of your fear. He says, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In other words, what he's telling them is that you shouldn't fear man. You should fear God. I was thinking about the, uh, uh, the midwives in Exodus, right? And the Pharaoh commanded them. He said, I want you to start killing babies. You know what it said that they did not do it? The reason why that was given? I think it's Exodus 11. He, it says that they feared God rather than Pharaoh. So Jesus is telling them, don't fear men, fear God. And why is that? It's because God and God alone has the omnipotence and the right to execute judgment and justice over men's souls. Now, this isn't talking about Satan as the one who has the authority, right? Satan has no authority to send anybody into hell because hell is going to be his final resting place. Revelation 20, verse 10 tells us that there's going to be a future where he himself is cast into hell. And nowhere in Scripture are we told to fear Satan. We're told to resist. We're told to avoid giving him the opportunity to lure us into sin. We're told to be aware of Satan's schemes. We're never told to rebuke him or call him out like they did in that movie, The War Room. But Satan has obviously no authority to cast anyone into hell. That right, it belongs to God and God alone. And he will execute it in perfect justice. Better is one day in the courts of the Lord than a thousand elsewhere. Perfect justice will be executed by God. Now I have a lot more to say about these verses and I ran out of time this week. I had a couple pages of notes with verses about the fear of the Lord and didn't have opportunity to flesh that out and I didn't really have time to do justice to these verses. And so next week I want to try to answer the question, of what does a God-fearing person look like? What comfort do we have in fearing the Lord? I'll give you a hint from Proverbs fourteen twenty-seven, which says, The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. And so I want to flesh out next week what delighting in the fear of the Lord is next week. And so there's a little teaser for you to come back next week. If you're not going to be here, you can listen on the internet. But I want to ask you this morning, are you orienting your life in the fear of the Lord? Do the the day-to-day decisions that you make in your life begin and end in the fear of the Lord? Do Do you ask yourself when you're faced with a decision or a choice about something, will this please or displease my Heavenly Father? These are things that we need to be asking on a daily basis to live in the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just uh, recognize that whatever is said, whatever is communicated here, falls grossly short of communicating the, the beauty of your holiness and the the depth of your power and the majesty which you alone possess. But God, just help our hearts to walk in the fear of the Lord. Help us to learn what that means. Help us to delight in revering you and living in awe of you. 
not in a servile fear as someone to be afraid, but Lord, as someone who loves you and, and wants to be with you and know you more and wants to find what's pleasing to you. So Lord, the, this morning we just thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness, your might, and your power. Help us to walk closely with you and walk in the fear of the Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.